Hey there, this is Nathan. Welcome to the Camden Haven Anglican Church Podcast. I'm glad you're making the time to listen to this week's teaching. I'll have more to say at the end, but for now, let's dive right in. All right, well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you today. Um, what is it that persuades you to believe and trust in Jesus? And if you don't believe or trust in Jesus, what is it that persuades you not to? Uh, the message about Jesus is something that we need to be persuaded about, and persuasion comes when our minds are engaged, when we intentionally investigate the facts and think the message through. However, no one is persuaded by facts alone. We also need to see how the message meets our heart, how it meets the needs that we know are in our hearts. So to be persuaded, <clears throat> you could say it needs to sound persuasive and it needs to feel persuasive. So I just want to say three things today. And uh, the first thing is that the message about Jesus fascinates, that is, engages the mind, that the message about Jesus floods the heart, and that the message about Jesus fulfills the promise. Now, they're all Fs there, aren't they? Fascinates, floods, and fulfills. You can see why I had to muffle it a little bit with engages. But anyway, you got the idea of fascinates. But the first one, message of Jesus fascinates or engages the mind. Now, in the part of the Bible called Acts that we read from today, the Apostle Paul has been preaching and talking to people about the message about Jesus, and this has caused a significant religious authoritative group to get very upset about what he's saying. They wanted to deal with him, they wanted him dead, and so they appoint 40 assassins to get him. The Apostle Paul is the original John Wick, if you know what that means. Uh, how would you like to find out that you have 40 assassins against you, out to get you? You'd be looking every, every which way, wouldn't you? This is what you would need to hear. You would need to hear the Lord say this, Acts 23 and verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Notice, he says there, testified to the facts and testify also in Rome. To testify to the facts means our brains need to be engaged. Have you switched your brain on this morning or is it still too early or is it Sunday? Do not switch it on on Sunday. No, it must be switched on when we come to hear this message because it's about assessing real historical events and this needs to go on in your brain. I went to uh, Turkey with, uh, or Turkey, with um, Bishop Paul Barnett on a bit of a tour of all the, the uh, footsteps of uh, the Apostle Paul, the, the churches of the New Testament there. And he kept reminding us that Christianity is about real places. It's about verifiable, historic and public events. Unlike, for example, Hinduism, 
which is about things that happened in another realm before any of humanity were even around. It's a bit hard to verify that, isn't it? Or even about uh, Islam, which is basically the writings of one man privately in a cave that everybody just has to believe. You can't verify it. The events of Jesus' death and resurrection, however, are public and verifiable. And this one verse in Acts 26 says they were not done in a corner. That is, they were done out in the open. Now, I heard someone of someone once who was converted by the, reading the last book of the Bible. Do you know the last book of the Bible? Do you know it? Revelation? No. It's the book of maps. Haven't you seen the book of maps? The very last book, the very last pages of your Bible have probably got maps in them. And this struck them so much. They went, wait a minute, these are real places. These are real times. These are real events. This is real stuff going on. In the passage that was read for us in Acts 26, we see Paul in a sort of a court scene. And he is standing before two guys, Agrippa, King Agrippa, Jewish King Agrippa, and the Roman governor, Festus. Uh, that's a picture of them there. Unfortunately, they were only heads, so. Paul had to give a defense of the message about Jesus before these two. This was the, another step closer to being in Rome. And Paul begins like this. Emotions with his hand. It starts like that. It, it is a, hey, everybody, if you're not listening, it's time to listen to what I'm about to say. You can, you can picture that. He goes on talking about how he was, first of all, persuaded against Jesus. In fact, it says in verse 11 that he was exceedingly furious towards Christians. He believed that Jesus was a fake and that Christians were contaminating Judaism and needed to be eradicated. And he received authority from the chief priests to not only imprison Christians, but also to put them to death. And it says, says there in uh, verse 10 that, that Paul cast his vote uh, it actually is the words, cast a pebble. Now, what, what that story was about is that then you would cast a vote by casting a pebble. If you got a white pebble and you cast it, it'd be yes. If you got a black pebble and cast it, the vote would be no. So you can picture Paul there at the stoning of Stephen... And the people looking towards Paul, saying, what do we do? Do we kill him or not? And Paul getting a white pebble and literally casting the first stone. But all that changed, didn't it, on the road to Damascus? In a blaze of light, the resurrected Jesus confronts Paul and everything changes. It says these words, <clears throat> Jesus says, I am sending you to open eyes and turn people from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, just notice there, in Acts chapter 9, in the the story of Paul's conversion, Paul ends up being blind for three days. So it's ironic that Jesus says to a blind man, what? I'm sending you to open eyes. His eyes were shut, but his eyes were opened. His spiritual eyes, he saw the truth spiritually. And this spiritual eye opening was an opening from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they may receive forgiveness and a place among God's people. How is it? How, how, how can you get your eyes open spiritually? How do you open your eyes spiritually? Well, Paul says it here, how that happens. Verse 20, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. In one sentence is how to have your eyes open spiritually. You listening? You want to open your eyes? There's the offer. It's a great offer. Have you been persuaded about the resurrection? Have you been engaged in your mind and realised you need to have your eyes opened to be freed and forgiven? What does Festus think? The governor, the Roman governor, he says, Paul, you are out of your mind to think that someone came back from the dead. Probably look at Agrippa goes, oh, stupid, you know. Now see what Paul does? Paul then asks Agrippa, you know the prophets. You know what I'm talking about. You know the prophets have always looked forward to the resurrection You know of all the stuff that's being being said around the streets about Jesus coming back from the dead. You know it all. You know that none of this was done in a corner. You know that the resurrection is what was always promised and this promise has started in Jesus. And I can imagine Festus turning to Agrippa. Is this true? And Agrippa going, well... Come to think of it, I wonder if you've ever come to think of it. Is your mind engaged? The Bible calls us to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. It comes as a set. You don't just choose one or four. One of those is your mind. How do you love God? With your mind. If you were to poke, if you could, if you were to poke your head in on a first century church meeting, you would think that you'd poked your head in on the wrong meeting. Because you would have said, this, this doesn't look like a church, it looks more like a school. Because people, the Christians at that time, were characterised by devotion to the apostles' teaching. 
Their minds were engaged. So let me ask you, have you ever considered the possible opportunity to take notes at church? Has it ever crossed your mind? Have you ever had a Bible open in front of you at church? Have you ever thought about joining a growth group? Uh, are you interested in the conversation nights that we're starting? I think it's in the bulletin. There's something about it. Did you know that there's people from our congregation who are or have studied at Bible college? Travis, Elizabeth, Jesse, Simon. Jen, no, I haven't got to Jenny yet. She's in the next category. Because you always say, yeah, well, they're all meant to. But then there's Jenny and another girl called Ellie. Now, they're not meant to, but they are because they're meant to. <laughs> I'm not saying everyone should go to Bible college, but if you get the opportunity, why wouldn't you take it? Someone said to Ellie, if you don't know, Ellie's my daughter. Oh, are you going to Bible college because your dad did? Well, if you want to get someone's back up, she said, no. And her words were, I'm going to find out for myself what I've just been being taught all my life. So that's, that's using your brain, isn't it? It's getting your mind involved. Now, I don't know the best way that you learn. Maybe you don't learn by taking notes or having your Bible open. It's all right. You know, I'm not going to check up on you or something like that. It's okay. But I am asking you to work out how you learn best and do that. You shouldn't even care if I check up on you anyway, really. It's about you and Jesus, not about you and me. So talking about me, if you have never disagreed with me on anything that I've said, then you're probably not using your mind. I want to encourage you to disagree with me. It's okay, because that's evidence that your mind is being engaged. But if you've never disagreed with yourself, then I want to say you've probably never engaged your brain, really. You've just been happy to continue the confirmation bias that you're with and want to just continue that to happen. Have you ever changed your mind on something in Scripture? Did you believe something and go, oh, I found out I was wrong about that? Well, praise God, now I know more of the truth. That's a good thing. Love God with your mind. The message about Jesus persuades because it fascinates the mind, but it also floods the heart, which is the second point. And this is a shorter point, and the third point's even shorter, so don't worry too much that I'm going to go over time or something like that. Did you notice in verse 14 it says this? Uh, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what are these poor goads that he's kicking against? Now, a goad is a stick to prod the animal that you're trying to control. So an ox or a horse or something like that, that that's what they did. And so I suppose the American cowboys have spurs, and the spurs were the purpose of prodding the horse. I'm not sure that's a really nice thing to do to a horse, but I wouldn't do it. I'd work out another way of doing it, but that's what a prod is is if the animal rejected the prod what would happen 
gets another prod and another prod until it does what it's told. I think this verse is saying that Jesus has been prodding Paul's heart for a long time. And maybe the first prod was a man called Stephen. How could Paul watch Stephen die such a violent death with such a resting grace? Possibly Paul couldn't get the picture of Stephen's face out of his mind. A joyful countenance in the midst of a horrific situation is murder. A prod. Or maybe every believer that Paul put in jail who didn't recant, who happily went and took that punishment was another prod. And a prod after prod after prod after prod. Jesus used people as prods of Paul's heart. Paul, to kick against the prods, would have had to intentionally harden his heart until he could finally do it no longer. And see, this is the thing. Um, Jesus prods the heart. Jesus has and is prodding your heart. He prods your heart like this when he says, Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And after you've possessed an abundance, you go, you know, he's absolutely right. There's a big empty hole still here. You're right, Jesus. Jesus says he has water to quench a thirsty soul and you say, ah, oh, yeah, I, I have a soul that needs quenching. That's another prod. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you say, yeah, my heart definitely needs rest. I'm tired of giving it to everything and everyone and just feeling this emptiness continue. Jesus keeps asking the heart questions of meaning and significance and value and identity and that gets to our hearts. One writer named Philip Schaaf put it like this. I'll read it for you. This Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line... He set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Jesus is a heart prodder.
Jesus gets to the heart. You see, no one is convinced by facts alone. They need the heart needs to be met. So you could say the wonderful thing is this. Christianity, not only ex Jesus, not only exposes your heart's need, but meets your heart's need. Isn't that wonderful? What he demands, he also provides. Wonderful. Prod, prod. Prod, 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 prod. Prod times however many people. Just prod the person next to you. The message about Jesus persuades because it fascinates the mind, it floods the heart, and finally the message about Jesus fulfills the promise. And just in short, Jesus' resurrection is what the Old Testament prophets always were talking about. Uh, I remember talking to my dad once about uh, the resurrection, and I said, well, you've got to investigate Christianity first because it has the greatest claim of all the religions. It says that our leader rose from the dead, which is a difference from every other one that stayed dead. And he said, well, that can't be right. Surely there's another religion that talks about being raised from the dead. You know what? You look for one. There's not. Not one. You can go and check out all those deady bones for yourself. But you can't with Christianity. He is risen. There is a big difference. And the resurrection finds its meaning on the event that preceded it when Paul says, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and, as first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. You see, the resurrection was God's thumbs up to Jesus' death on the cross, actually really paying the penalty for your sin and mine. That's why Paul will say in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And Agrippa knows exactly where Paul is headed here. And in verse 28 says, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul comes back to him saying this, Great, short time or long, I pray to God not only that you, but all who are listening to me today may come what I am, except for these chains. Now remember Paul's speech, he motioned with his hand. What's he got hanging round his wrist? Chains. Paul wasn't persuading people for his own personal gain or benefit. In fact, the more he persuaded, the more likely things were to go bad for him. The people who authorised Paul to murder Jesus' followers had now lost their star player. <laughs> and he'd turned on and played for the, he's now playing for the other team. And as quickly as they turned to him, they now turned on him and sent those 40 assassins against him. You see, friends, brothers and sisters, Paul's conversion and preaching 
is a powerful persuader because he had nothing to gain except getting the truth of Jesus into your life. All he has to gain is you. Because he gets chains. He gets chains. You get freedom. So let me finish by saying that the Christian faith is a faith about truth. And it is therefore truth for all. It's not just for Jewish people. It's not just for Westerners. And it's not just like for a bunch of middle class people. Christianity is for all people. It's not limited to any culture. In fact, and this is demonstrably true, and you will believe it when you hear it, that Christianity has proved itself to be the most diverse multicultural movement in history precisely because it meets the mind and the universal need of every heart. So, friends, if you're an unbeliever today, what, what would it take for you to be persuaded what do you need? We'll ask for it. If you are persuaded, if you are a believer, will you, with God's strengthening, resolve to begin to slowly and gently persuade others? You know, if you're worried, as we have this series that I or we somehow just want to get you out there on the corner preaching on the street corners or whatever? You're probably right. Because until they hear, they will not be converted. They will not be persuaded. Now, I'm not saying you have to go on the street corners. I actually think that's a bad idea, by the way. I don't think anybody's reached by having someone shouting at them as you pass by doing your shopping. But a friend, gently and carefully, prayerfully, suggesting every now and then that maybe the other person thinks about Jesus in some way of coming to something, to church, to an event, whatever. That you can do. That's okay. That's probably a good plan. Let me pray. Uh, loving Father, we do pray that more people in our community, in our nation and in this world, will be persuaded by the message of Jesus, that it will meet their minds, that it will meet their hearts, and that they will see this is the message of the Bible all along about Jesus. And we pray it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Hi again, this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope that we shared something that's helpful to you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little more about us, we are Camden Haven Anglican Church. We're a church that tries not to be too churchy and more relational. We meet every Sunday. We have four services at two locations. If you want to connect with us, you can find more about us on our website, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or just send an email to info at havenanglican.com. If this teaching has blessed you, we'd love to hear from you wherever you are in the world. And we pray that we've helped you to grow a little more into Jesus today. See you next time.